Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to The Unnarrative, hosted by AJ Channer. I am the refugee, poster child of tragedy. I am the future, everything you need to be. I am the chosen, I am not your enemy. I am the one. Yes, yes, family, welcome back. My name is AJ Chana. As usual, I am joined by my wonderful producer, Johnny Jahani, and this is The Unnarrative. Uh, the Unnarrative is a podcast where we attempt to make sense of the nonsense, cut through the noise. This is our second episode, and what a show it is. Uh, we have a story today. We have a story. Uh, some time ago, some months ago, after the George Floyd incident happened, I went to Minneapolis. Um, I went to Minneapolis. I took part in some demonstrations there. Uh, I was all over the city. Um, I set up headquarters uh, just by uh, the University of Minnesota, the Golden Golfers. You went to Minneapolis when exactly? How long after? So the, the incident with George Floyd happened on Thursday. Riots kicked off. Friday, Saturday, all through the weekend. I was there Monday morning. I remember I remember we were sitting and you actually told me you were leaving. And I think it was literally the day of. Yeah, yeah. Like the day I saw all that kicking off, I was like, all right, I'm going. Um, so the reason why I went, as I said, was not to get involved on uh, a level of, hey, I want to go fuck some shit up. I'm going to go tear things up. No, not at all. Um, I've been involved in things like that, you know, but, um, that, that, that wasn't this, that's not what this was about. You've like seen anarchy at that level. I mean, not full on anarchy, but that kind no, of, uh, but I've seen riotous behavior. Okay. You know, I've seen that happen. I've, I've, I'm a football fan and you know, <laughs> I've watched football <laughs> matches in Europe. Mate, so I've seen it happen. You know what I'm saying? I've seen footy violence and stuff like that. So I want to talk about the op-ed that I wrote. Um, I went to, I also went to Atlanta and took part in some demonstrations there. One, the one in Atlanta was actually quite unique because it was specifically centered around a Confederate statue uh, in by the Capitol building of, I guess, a, a Georgia founder. I really forget who was on the statue, but it was about the statue. And I had gone again to talk, to talk to people, not to sit here and, and vandalize and all that other crazy shit, but we'll get into that. So, subsequent to my trip, I wrote this op-ed that was featured in Loudwire. You can find it find it on loudwire.com. Uh, you can put AJ Channer or Fire from the Gods in there, and it, it'll pop up as part of the history of press through that we have. And thank you, Loudwire, for being so supportive of this, uh, this movement, so supportive of Fire from the Gods, and the things that I have to say. Uh, before we get into it, I want to talk a little bit, you know, just just to piggyback on our last episode, talking about who we are, what in us we trust is, all that other stuff. You know, I, I said something that I know a lot of people have, a lot of people ask about revolution, and why do I re why do I refer to what I'm doing and who I am as revolutionary, and why am I a revolutionary when I'm someone that promotes nonviolence, that I'm not about violence, that I'm not about what's happening in the streets, what people perceived to be as revolution because you know look at bob marley bob marley was in a situation one time in africa where the 
concert was getting tear gassed. It was a highly charged political situation. And he had gone to hold a show and the show was, was getting tear gassed and the, the crowd riots had broken out. It got nuts. And the, the whalers and everyone in Bob's band, they all bounced. They all left the stage. They ran. And Bob kept jamming. Like alone on stage? On stage. He kept jamming <laughs> with tear gas going. You know what I'm saying? And then when he went back or, you know, when he went back um, to get everybody and stuff, he said to them, he's like, I and I now know who the true revolutionary is. You know what I'm saying? And that is something that stuck out to me because that's part of my ethos. That's part of Enough Sweet Trust. That's part of my message with Fire from the Gods. You know, you can be a revolutionary and change things. Bob was a revolutionary. He was the revolution. In, in all essence. And he did it without firing a bullet. He fired shots, lyrical shots, and he fired, you know, um, he made fantastic songs. And look what he did for Jamaican culture. Look what he did for reggae music. Look what he did for punk rock. Look what he did for rock music. You know, look how influential Bob was. And one thing I think we're missing right now uh, in this time, this air of revolution and unrest is music. You know, music being taken away from us is detracting from the things that kind of bring us together. Now, when you say us. it's being taken away from us, do you mean at like an educational level? Or no, no, no. I mean, be, not being able to, to tour and play shows. Oh, <laughs> that's with what the I quarantine mean. and everything. Yeah, that's what I'm, t yeah, I'm talking about this air and everything that's going on. That, that's what I mean. But yes, we will get into that on the narrative because the importance of music education and how the funds and and how music education are one of the things to go uh, and how important music education is because it was very huge in my life i mean it's very influential on the person that i am today i mean i wouldn't be a musician without music education uh and how and just the, everything that surrounds it it's pretty cool we'll get into that episode man it, it'll be uh pretty cool man but back to the eight minutes and 46 seconds that changed the world. That's what it was called? Your That's what the op-ed was called. It was called Break the Cycle, the eight minutes and 46 seconds that changed the world. Written by AJ Channer. Written by AJ Channer, yes. Um, so today, folks, we're, I'm going to read excerpts from it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We're just going to read bits, bits of it that I thought were poignant that um, kind of lent itself to what we're trying to say with the narrative and exactly what I was trying to say as... Uh, AJ Chantner, the lead singer of Fire from the Gods, now the host of the Unnarrative Podcast. So, <laughs> let's get into it. All right. So, the first thing that I talked about were, you know, was systemic and institutional racism. We need to talk about that first. I'll just outline it. Uh, highlight it, specifically. Because that's what the basis of my op-ed was. And the nature of the conversations that I had with people and continue to have with people are that people don't really understand what that is. Like so laying out what exactly the definition of systemic mm -hmm. racism exactly. is. What that is and how it pertains to life, how it relates to life in America. Because I'm not even clear on that. It seems everyone has their own idea when they're reporting on it and it's just kind of muddying the water. Right. And, and But one thing too is, is it's being thrown around like a dirty word now. Because the instant you bring up racism... It's like, oh my God, I don't want to hear it. Don't fucking talk about it. We're not a racist nation. I'm not a racist. Why, is, why do we need to talk about racism? But the, unfortunately, that's part of the gaslighting of trying to say that we live in a colorblind society. Racism doesn't exist and it doesn't matter. Um, if you, we, we go back to the RNC 
um, a few weeks ago, and we go back to the DNC a few weeks ago when you know these political uh, factions give us their their pitch, their elevator pitch, basically. Uh, so the RNC made a clear effort to say that we are not a racist nation. The United States of America is not racist. And look, here we have these, and Donald Trump is not a racist. So the Republican National Committee just kind of had people up there talking about how we're not a racist nation? Right, okay, yeah, but that, that was the focus. The, the focus, well, the focus wasn't completely on racism, but it was kind of a backhand, like, look, we're not racist, let's get to what we're really talking about. Uh, we don't want to talk about racism because it's not who we're about, which is which is really fair. And it's fair to have Nikki Haley uh, come up and talk and, and, and all these other people that, that attested to the character of Donald Trump and all that. That was really cool. I got it. And to be fair, whilst watching it, I said, this is actually doing this is actually doing real some real good as far as reconciliation and rectifying the racial wounds uh, uh, and the racial uh, failures of, of the past. It's inadvertently doing it because for what they thought they were saying, like we're not a racist nation, which I think is something we need to eliminate from our uh, national vocabulary anyway, that we're a racist nation because then that makes it, you're, you're a racist, I'm a racist, oh, oh my God, who's a fucking racist? When again, that is drawing away from a real issue, which is systemic and institutionalized racism and the institutions that uphold it and the system that enables it. So it's it, it's not a person that's being racist in this no, institutionalized. I, it's the system itself it's the that's system, designed and it's, slanted. It's, it's the system itself that's been built on racist institutions. We're not going to have a we're not going to go back and have a full on historical, uh, you know, episode here or talk here. Y yes, I love to draw from history because I appreciate history. I have a lust for history. You know, I, I really liked to be fulfilled by history. You know, what I'm saying. I mean. Why don't you marry it? <laughs> but, but, you can but, take it to bed later. You, you get me, exactly. But the, the point is, dude, um, we need to get away from that because we need to stop pointing the finger and, and using racism as a crutch because the powers of be, the powers that be and those in power have always used racism as a way to divide. One side says, we're going to use racism to draw a line because we don't want you included. And the other side says, look, they're using racism to divide you. They're using racism against you. We weaponize racism. And then everyone gets caught into this, like, I don't know where it, what, what it is. It's like, let's talk about it. Let's really have conversations. And let's get to the point where we don't need to talk about it anymore. I don't really enjoy having conversations and having to explain to people what I think racism is. And furthermore, before we get into, I know we've taken so many side, side, uh, side ways here, so many you know, side streets, but we're going to get back on Main Street in a little bit. Trust me. This whole idea that racism is being used as a tool to destroy America, I wholeheartedly believe that because the enemies that we, that we have as, you know, in the world of geopolitics and all that, you have allies you have enemies so if our enemies want to destroy us which for years i mean it was openly talked about in the former soviet union and the former former communist strongholds of the world it was openly talked about the only way we're going to get rid of america and capitalism is by destroying it from within so why not use 
one of our weaknesses, one of our biggest weaknesses to destroy us and use racism. But the thing is, if we understand it and we understand what it is and how it's affected each and every one of us and affects the lives of Americans from on a, on a day-to-day basis, then it can no longer be used against us because now we'll find, just as we have done in the past, the way we work through things in this nation, the way we work through things as a people, we can we can talk it out. And if we have to use policy and politics, then we create policy, which has been done time and time again. We, we constantly make strides to rectify that. But this whole idea of it doesn't exist, we're not going to talk about it anymore, that's only just burying it. Burying your head in the sand. That, that's putting your head in the sand, and, and we have to attack it head on. So in your op-ed, did you discuss the internal corruption via how they use racism to kind of break us apart and use it as a divisive measure? No, no, I didn't get into any of that because I didn't want it to be a, a political puff piece, mm-hmm. you know, or I didn't want it to be that sort of, um, I didn't want to create that sort of dialogue. The dialogue that I was trying to create was based solely off In Us We Trust and the idea that people feel that they're under attack in this nation and people feel that racism is a tool that is used to attack each other and weaponized against each other, which we see every day. So let's get into the first bit of this. Uh, break the cycle. Without further ado, break the cycle. The eight minutes plus 46 seconds that changed the world. Ooh, 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 ooh. Has the world gone completely mad or have our eyes finally been forced open? Black, white, brown, yellow, red. These are skin colors but have become a system by which we divide ourselves. The race issue in the United States has always been the proverbial elephant in the room, from the founding of this nation all the way to where we are right now. Racism has always been a systemic institutionalized problem. We are now at a place where it has completely engulfed our lives. It is so pervasive and ingrained in American society that when systemic racism is called into question, people actually behave as if you're protesting and questioning America herself. You're right. I, I think that our eyes are finally being opened. I can speak for myself and a lot of people I know that everything going on is simply more and more of an exposure to a life that we're kind of completely oblivious to in a way. And some people call that privilege. Some people just call that being blind. I'm gonna just call it being blind right now. Um, I'm not saying privilege doesn't exist, but what I am saying is it's more so you've kind of just been pointed in a direction away from it slowly by what of you're course. fed with these amazing drip fed social biases. biases. Exactly. Let me just draw from a source here. The American Academy of Family Physicians, and this is one aspect of institutionalized racism. This is the institution, not the system. This is the institution. Uh, Racism, the AAFP, the American Academy of Family Physicians, recognizes that racism is a system that categorizes people based on race, color, ethnicity, and culture to differentially allocate societal goods and resources in a way that unfairly disadvantages some whilst without merit rewards others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They recognize it. They understand. We have seen in American textbooks and medical textbooks in the administering of medicine and healthcare in the United States has been extremely discriminatory in terms of race. I mean, it's in textbooks that, you know, black people are less susceptible to pain than 
our our peers and tend to overreact on things like that's like in a nurse's handbook i mean we're also you know that black women are more likely to die in given childbirth than a white woman and it happens we don't talk about it but it's because of these ideas and these things that that are institutionalized that are embedded in the institution that lend itself to racist and to bias so while a textbook is giving the narrative that black women are more likely to die the kind of more true hair to that is the fact that there's just not so much a medical availability exactly. to these people that's, in these specific standings, be they black, Hispanic. one major part of it. And the same thing applies to education. The same thing applies to the prison system. Mm. And these mm -hmm. are American, these are institutions within the United States. These are American institutions where we can find an obvious racial bias. And from that, how it becomes systemic is that it now is pervasive in other parts of American society, meaning in schools, in the way we behave, in the way we behave with each other when we walk down the street. These are parts of the institution. And why I specifically brought up the healthcare and, excuse me, the medical uh, field and the institution of medicine, because people like to say that racism is kind of like, and I say this a lot to you, people like to think that racism is this sticks and stones sort of thing. Um, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me, you know? Like toughen like, up kind of thing? Oh, like? it's just a word or two. You know, if you're not going in public with these overt displays of racism, like waving a swastika in someone's face and Zeke Hyland or calling someone derogatory, inflammatory, racial, derogatory words, then that's not, you know, that's not racism. Then nothing else, that's racism and nothing else. But what has caused so much of the, of the issues and because some of that stuff went unchecked and it now has ingrained itself and embedded itself in the social thought. So it's grown and grown and of it's course. just been unable to be stopped in the fact that it was planted at the specific way within a racist idea and exactly. it's just grown into this systemic racism. Exactly. So to continue, the death of George Floyd at the hands of police has yet shed light on the excessive force issue in departments throughout the country. Upon seeing the video from that fateful day in, in Minneapolis, one might ask himself, well, what else is new? Ain't that the truth? That's so funny. The answer is absolutely nothing. Throughout the decade, you know, and this is something that really sits, sits with me and hurts a lot. Throughout the decade, we've seen video after video of law enforcement brutally taking the lives of black men and women. But something is quite different this time. People decided to stand up and say they had had enough. Now, sidetrack. When, when I say that people have had enough, that was very clear in the reaction and the subsequent reactions that happened after. And so we tried to make sense of it. And people like myself said things like, would I do that? No. I wouldn't engage in that because, again, I don't think that's revolutionary. It's rage. But I understand the rage. I understand the emotions. And so what has come out from the other side of the conversation after that is that you're overreacting. You're lying. That doesn't really exist. There is no such thing as racism in this country. You're being manipulated. You're, you're being, you're being, 
coerced and you're being put up to it. So someone can so, trigger you. Exactly. You, something has triggered you. And now that is given the proliferation of a conspiracy theory. Hit the button. Yes. Do you think that another reason that a lot of people have decided to say fuck this enough is enough is now with the way social media has given us the ability to share so much, especially in 2020 when we're all kind of stuck and glued to our phones, no one can ignore it. No one can no longer kind of focus on the fact that this stuff is happening. It's right in your face everywhere you look. And now it just kind of lights that fire in your stomach. Um, of course, I think, yes, that 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 was kind of what really got a lot of people on board. And it was very good to see that. And I'm going to highlight that here in this next bit. Um, the Monday after the protest, I'm continuing now. The Monday after the protest, I packed a bag with a videographer by my side, set off for Minneapolis. What we found was a city in recovery, a city in mourning, in full view of the world. We also encountered press and news outlets from everywhere, which is obviously, which is obviously going to happen. Uh, the media has created this massive chasm. Here I go on to highlight, you know, what I got from the media and what we all know. The media has created this massive chasm between the peoples of the world, especially here in the United States. Media coverage creates ad adversaries for its narrative. Adversaries for its narratives, meaning creating an us versus them mentality and giving you an enemy. It feels as we the people are a ball in a tennis match being volleyed back and forth between the media and, and the government, aka politicians. My immediate thought was that Fire from the Gods had to tell the story from an unbiased, objective viewpoint while giving the people a voice. So from that objective viewpoint, and you know, to touch on the, the volleyball and the, the, the tennis the analogy and all that bullshit, um, we see it every day. You know, and, and what was, it was very, there was very little coverage talking about the recovery, the, the recovery um, efforts that were made to clean up the city and stuff like that, the come together aspect, because I was at two different, very large protests. Well, you have your demonstrations, as I like to call them, where there were youth, adults from everywhere in this small American city of Minneapolis that were everywhere from everywhere looking for for answers there were people talking there were people having you know conversations there were people and you have your agitators everywhere you have your black revolutionaries you got the you know what i'm saying that are just about you know kill whitey and bullshit like that you hear the fuckery in the corner you hear that but it wasn't like hey i'm gonna firebomb the street you know what i'm saying i didn't see any of that i just i saw the aftermath of some of that but we didn't see any of the, the, the people, the majority of people were there, were there to support, listen, and learn, which is, you know, the basis of the narrative, what we've been talking about, listen, listening and learning. And there were, because the shops were closed because of Corona and, and, and you know, the height of COVID, we, we're still, you know, very COVID afraid. Uh, there were people that... Um, had set up just food banks for people, knowing that and in and in a lower income, marginalized community like that, the target's gone the target was shut down because of the rioting and, and the looting. So people were like bringing and massive like stockpiles on corners, 
like, hey, just come here if you need if you need nappies for your kid, you need food, you need uh, you know, tuna, non-perishables, just come here and get it. There were people everywhere just, you know, had grills out cooking, just giving people free food. There were churches involved. There there were um community organizations that were just feeding people, giving everyone, you know what I'm saying? The real community. And amongst that, you were you had people just talking and trying to understand. And that was very positive dialogue. That was a very positive move for, again, the reconciliation and one, and once and for all, trying to rectify this by using our voices instead of using our fist and instead of looking to DC for some sort of direction because we know what they, we know what they care about. And their votes and their, their term limits and all that bullshit, they don't give a shit about us. We are, a, we are a, a zero and a one to them. To continue, talking about what I had seen, and the, you know, I've seen some extraordinary things in my life. I've seen bullet holes and bombed out buildings in Jerusalem. I've seen a refugee camp in Ghana. I've seen abject poverty and suffering. But none of that struck me like the aftermath of Minneapolis. Probably for one, because I'm an American and I never thought in my life I'd see. And I'm not just talking about the fucked up target, the burnt out police station, the, the small businesses that surrounded it. There were photos that I have and then I'll share that. I'll put that up on our Instagram and stuff like that. There was a building that had a board that said, people live here, please don't burn. What? The graffiti on the wall, on the target, you know, it, it, it was like a generation begging to be heard. There were phrases like, let me live, respect my skin, please stop killing us. That, my friend, is not Chinese manipulation. That's not, that's not uh, some, some conspiracy theory involving Black Lives Matter. That is people from the streets, that's living, breathing human beings saying, please stop killing us. And on the other side, what you, you, you're going to hear is, well, please stop committing crimes. But again, that's all part of the institution. Because what a, what's a crime here is not a crime there. What's, what's, uh, what you serve 22 years for here, someone is doing fucking community service for over here. So let's not talk about the disproportionate crime rates and all that. Let's just talk about what we're seeing in front of our face and what we're hearing. Yes, the facts, the ratios, blah, 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 all, but that all stems from somewhere. And it's not the white man's fault. No, that's not what I'm saying. It's all about the institutions that were set up that have lent itself to the bias, that have exacerbated the bias, that have helped cultivate the bias that is now part of our everyday life. Would you, would you say that one of these pieces of institutionalized law. I mean, I don't want to get too deep about this. We'll talk about like drug law, of course, in an episode someday, but would you say that's possibly one of the biggest forms of institutionalized racism? That was, that was probably the full might of the aftermath of the Jim Crow era, the interpretation of what the 13th Amendment was. That was kind of the full might and the brevity of let's let's put these people in line and again it didn't only harm black people 
although the 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 amount of the disproportionate amount of racial makeup of that you know were were black people well the people that they'd exercise those specific laws upon were the ones they designed of, to do of, it of course exactly um but marginalized communities across america felt fell victim and fall victim unfortunately most of those people happen to be black but and that's not absolving the system of racism or saying again it doesn't exist but it's saying that racism is a factor that has gone into it and racism is a factor that continues it and lets and keeps it thriving would you say that the system is not only about ethnic background or anything like that but also a monetarily driven system of course i mean you know it's a class class is is has always been a thing class has been a thing since the dawn of time those that have and those that don't have you know and if i have i'm in power and if you don't have you therefore need something from me so therefore i have power over you but um sounds like serfdom class tch, <laughs> yes class plays a massive part of that and lending itself to what i just said unfortunately most in the lower class tend to be tend to be black and brown people in marginalized communities um this is not a crutch upon which someone needs to lean and say oh my god because of this racist system i cannot succeed but see that's the beauty of our system and we'll talk about that why the system works so you mean self-victimization allowing course, yourself exactly. to take a victim mentality that, saying that, oh poor me this is the reason exactly, i can't succeed i'm a victim exactly that is something that is that that is uh proliferated amongst the black community for so long and has it, it's festered this victimized idea idea that we are under attack which okay we'll get into that so what you saw in what you saw in minneapolis was nothing like we're fed it was really on a human level getting to see the interactions exactly, exactly. you were getting to see that people were starting to understand you were getting to see that people were like damn this might actually be there might be a real problem I'm going to skip a little bit and then go into the rest of this, but shout out to Pimento Kitchen, who was the Jamaican restaurant that uh, had a neighborhood kind of policing system, neighborhood watch, because the cops had completely abandoned the area, as well as a very functional and very successful food bank. Pimento Kitchen was a Jamaican restaurant in Minneapolis. Um, I went, spoke with the guys there, spoke to uh, some of the the people helping out black and white, you know, everyone just, just coming together, just trying to help their community thrive in the wake of something so tragic. The use of excessive force in the United States by police officers has reached a critical point. Look at what happens across America every day with excessive force. I mean, we there was an autistic kid in, uh, in Colorado, I believe, just over the weekend, who... His mom had called the cops because I guess he has he has to express himself. You know, he has an issue where he gets a little wild. And so mom called the cops. to, But she called because she wanted a crisis uh, management person to come out and kind of, you know, deal with the situation. It's murky, but then the cops end up shooting the kid. This is, the kid was white. So again, it's not about skin color excessive force does get wrapped into situations between black people and cops sometimes and 
extremely violently and tragically because of excessive force. It sounds like police and calls are becoming more and more a quarter slot machine that you don't know what the fuck you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. You I just mean, put it's, a coin in yeah, watch yeah. The you, just, you just don't know. Yeah, you don't know because, and it's like, I said that in the right before the the Break the Cycle music video, which features footage from Minneapolis, which I stood in front of that target and I was telling the videographer that, you know, it's 2020 and we're still like, like you just said, you know, I don't want to have an interaction with police and it end violently, but I don't know that. I don't know that that's not going to happen. I don't know. And one thing that I've always said to my friends a lot and people that are like, racism doesn't exist and it's, you know, it doesn't matter. I'm like, can you honestly picture yourself under that cop's knee? Does that look like Johnny Jahani would be in that, in that altercation? In, in, in a tiny percentage, but to be honest with you, man, all of my dealings with police officers have been, yes, sir, no, sir, thank you, sir, have a great day. Right, as of mine, as of mine. It's just like, I, I could imagine it getting to that point, but it's really difficult for me to see that. It's very difficult. Right, but I could have easily been there. So it's I a reality, could have been it's George reality for you. Yeah, that's a reality day, for me. I could have easily, have, I could have easily, I've been in situations. Like loaded dice. Where, where I've. You know, but and I and I say this in the break the cycle video. I say, you know, my mom always told me to say yes, sir, no, sir. I've, I've always been extremely polite with police. I don't. I'm none of that. Fuck you, pig. You know, come get it. You know what I'm saying? I'm not. I'm not interested in any of that. There have been times, you know, man. And I'll tell you the story real, real quick. I got arrested one time. Um, I was going to a show, man. I went to a fucking rock show, and my buddy passed me uh, a ticket, which was my ticket for the show. He printed it out for me. Cop rolls up behind us and stops us. My boy has an ounce of weed on him. Why do you bring an ounce of weed to a rock show in the first place? I don't know why. Lou, you fucking idiot. But he had... But dude, here's where, here's where it gets a little murky with shit. I know we've gotten a little bit off topic, folks, but we'll get back to this. Um, just, keep, just keep tuning in because th this is good. Uh, my... I was... Uh, the cop approached us and... The cop goes, NYPD, get up against the wall. Were y'all uh, all black? Are y'all all black? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, lose a uh, uh, darker skinned Dominican kid. So three black, black guys three black in kids. a car. And one, and one white kid, by the way. And an ounce of loud-ass weed. There was, there was a white kid, yeah, and some loud-ass weed. There was a white kid with us. So this is where it's like, yo, that was fucked up, uh -huh. Mr. Officer. Uh -huh. But so um, we went up against, we got us up against the wall, and lose like, why? And I'm like, why? We've done nothing wrong. Cop goes, you sold him the weed because he found the weed in lose in lose um in lose fucking trousers. And he goes, you sold him weed. I'm like, no, I didn't. I just got a ticket from him. I, you didn't see him pass. We, you didn't see me pass weed. Cop wasn't having it. But that's part of you know the quota shit in New York City. Like the cop had to bust some heads. Was this during stop and frisk? Oh yeah. Really? So in a way, they, were they exercising stop and frisk upon y'all right then and there? Sort of, sort of, yes. Um, Cupcake, who was um, my bass player in the band with me at the time, this white kid, uh, he, he actually stood up to the officer and he was like, officer, he didn't do anything. Yeah, my buddy here who has the weed on him is an idiot for having an ounce of weed on him for one rock show for whatever reason. He's like, he's like, yeah, that, that guy's done wrong. What has my friend done? And then he, the cop goes, you, you're good. 
just leave to the white kid and puts Lou and I up against the wall. And here's where it could have got like a George Floyd situation. Just a week before I had been arrested. Uh, I had been arrested and did 72 hours in um, Central Bookings in Manhattan. In Brooklyn, excuse me. Um, yeah, in Brooklyn. I got to think between. I've been in so many times. I have to think <laughs> which one was it. But yeah, so it was in, 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 in Brooklyn. I had been held for about 72 hours. So I was in jail for about two and a half days almost. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and so I panicked because one of the terms of a release are you don't get in trouble in between now and your court date. I hadn't been there for my court date. So I was like, oh my God. I was like, officer, come on. I didn't do anything. Why are you pulling? Why? 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 Because I'm like, what are you going to do? You're going to book me? I'm going to go back into the system. And now that's going to pile up on the case. So I'm like freaking out. Officer, why? He could have easily been like, stop resisting and throw me on the floor and put his fucking knee on my neck. And I could have been dead. But I don't know that if that's not going to happen in my altercations with police going forward because that's because now I, I, I've now lived that situation and I can now insert myself into George Floyd's shoes. And who knows, man? George Floyd, we know the guy had a shady past. One out of five black men in America have a shady past. A lot of people, despite being black or white, you know, I know tons of white people with hella course, shady futures. Of course, but I'm just saying the, the, the statistics are a bit yeah, higher. Yeah, of course. And so, you know, cops, cops know of these situations. Trust me, they know. They're not going into the situation like, well, uh, sir, law-abiding citizen, <laughs> please come over here. Nah, man, they're like, yo, you slip the guy a shady 20, you, you look and sound like you're high. So come on, let's talk. It ended tragically. And it's brought us to where we are. Um, to touch back on a little bit of something that I, um, I had spoken about before. The, there is a generation of kids that are now 10, 12, 15, who've only grown up with, looking, with watching on the media and seeing violent altercations between police and black people. And then when you hear about, when you, when you get to where we are now, you know, you, you have to think, what are we teaching these kids? What have we taught these children? The language of violence? Okay, law and order, I get it. Yeah, you teach your kid some respect from the home. You, 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 when they grow up, you teach them how to respect themselves, respect people. That's why I put such an emphasis on holistic education in the sense of giving children a sense of belief in themselves and pride in themselves so that when they do uh, get into the, the, the world, they understand how to interact with, with people and they understand that people kind of believe on, and, uh, and believe in, and have that same sort of uh, belief in themselves. It, it's hard to do that. You know, that takes time and that's going to take a whole rethinking of the way we do things. But um, so the you know, education it, it, that we've given children in the media, I mean, let's be realistic here. The media is 
one of the biggest forms that, of exactly. education that's, children that's will ever use. Brought, that, that's why I brought that up. And in it's not like kids are watching the news, but they're constantly fed that, you know, another black person shot, oh, this traffic exactly. stop ended fatally for this guy. For this black person, for that black person, for that black person. And then they're, then they're going to grow up inherently believing that's that black right. people are criminals. Yeah. That's part of the, that's systemic. But let's... um continue a little bit more well, before we continue I'm i just done so next time you go to a metal show is it safe to say you should you should take the weed and leave the money yeah man exactly exactly could, yeah that's a good one that's a good one that's a good one but um to just bring it back to uh the eight minutes and 40 30, 46 seconds excuse me eight minutes and 46 seconds that changed the world um, from healthcare to the vast gap between the rich and poor, all the way to the beleaguered educational system, racial discrimination rears its ugly head in people's circumstances. Minneapolis is no different from any of, a, of the crumbling great cities of the great... Uh, Minneapolis is no different than any of the other crumbling cities of the great republic that is the USA. The city was full of broken hearts and burned buildings, but no building stood out to me like that of the third precinct. The third precinct was the building that was on fire uh, that the first night of the protest was the precinct that polices that area of uh, Minneapolis. What was supposed to be a haven of security and safety looked to me like the fortress of a foreign occupying force. People might hear this and think this is very derogatory towards police because, you know, that's part of the narrative is anything that's anything that's said that might make law enforcement, that might paint law enforcement in a dark light or a bad light is anti-police. This is the war on police. You want to defund the police. You hate cops. Oh, my God. Dude, chill the fuck out. <laughs> I just want to live in a place where we can get along. And, and live and in a place when a mother calls the police for her son who's having a mental issue. And she he doesn't, doesn't get, get a shot. Militarized exactly. She does, exactly. She, she doesn't get a, an absolute weapon out there that's going to blow a kid away. So here, here is um, something that really stood out to me and why I brought up the third precinct. What was, again, what was supposed to be a haven of security and safety looked to me like the fortress of a foreign occupying force. This brings up a very big question in the institution of, of uh, policing in America and the bias and the racial issues that stem from it. Uh, this number might not be exact, but it was a number that I heard many times. And I heard this number actually from police and from people that worked in uh, civil, civil servants in Minneapolis, as well as just normal citizens on the street. There were about a thousand cops or so in the Minneapolis police force. 30 to 40 of that number were black, were black men. Or black police officers out of a, out of a thousand police officers 30 to 40 not percent not percent 30 to 40 yes. of them so you're talking three you to four percent three to four percent of the force were black um and this is in minneapolis this is in minneapolis and this happens 
in many cities across America. That's another thing that, that really stuck out to me and kind of like struck a nerve. Because in, in the United States of America, we always hear about Chicago, New York, LA, Detroit. We hear about these urban centers of America that are full of, you know, that are full of violence and criminals and, and gangs and, and, and gun, guns and, and, and violence and blah, 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 blah. But, but you forget that these very small cities that were part of the diaspora of black people from the South that fled Jim Crow South, they went to cities all over America. They went to um, Kenosha's of the world. You know, they went to these small cities in, in, and, and created their own sort of, um, their, their own communities. And it was only about 10% and, that left. In the South, you oh, had, yeah. I think it was 300,000, and then it was 30,000 that went up North. You still had a massive percentage of people that still stayed in the South because they were tied to the South. Well, and and post-slavery, we'll, we'll these that. people had never been given chances for education. This was the infancy of this entire lineage that now became free and moved up North. Yeah, yeah. So the, the part of that diaspora uh, were people that fled Jim Crow South and fled even before Jim Crow was... Jim Crow, and it was just, oh, this is the way things are down here. Um, th these, these small communities were started all over the United States, and we tend to overlook them because their communities are small. And so we don't think about what that, the implications of that are when they're policed by people from other neighboring suburbs and, and places of people that have grown up a certain way and hear that, oh, well, these communities are filled with nothing but criminals and drugs and, and, and drug addicts. So we are dealing with that very situation in, in Minneapolis. And then you talk about a police force that has a thousand white, a, a thousand cops and only 30 or so of those cops are black. So who's policing these areas? People that don't live there, that don't come from there, that don't have conversations with the people from there, that don't understand the community. They come, they work their shift. And then we also know how hard it is when you do deal with an element of fuckery like criminals and drugs and you have to deal with the normal shit that cops have to deal with on a daily basis that, that really makes their job incredibly difficult. So it's the outsider policing the outsider in a way. It's, exactly. That's a very good way to... to, to um, to put it, the, the outsiders policing the outsider because everyone's looking at each other like they're outsiders. Would you say that that, that three, 4%, that's, a, that's an example of systemic racism, isn't it? And not necessarily racism. I mean, you could put it that way. Them, you, could, you could put it that way, but then that's going to take, that, take us off into another conversation. And then that's going to, which, yes, we are talking about the institution of racism, but that's going to bring us down to drawing facts, ratios, and, and you know, that's going to say that there is a pervasive racist. Uh, institution within the police departments in America, which we kind of, which there's uh, somewhat. But that's not what but, we're getting into. More so, but the we don't want to get that, into that. And also, being able to be judged by your peers, I think, goes further than just being in the court. You know, a lot right, of it is to right. do with I'm, policing I'm, that your peers should right. be the one administering. Exactly, people that. But see, that was something that had to be stopped during like the uh, the height of organized crime in With New the York, Rico Chicago, and everything like and that, and all that, because the cops were coming from the same neighborhood that the gangsters were in, and that 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 lent it, that lent itself to pervasive corruption amongst police cops that sell coke. I mean, I know cops that that stole from drug dealers that you know that were parts of units that oh, were yeah. part of embedded 
uh, culture of crime. So that that's why they, you know you had to kind of like toss it around a little bit. And not and all of them, people. But a lot of them. But I really am interested. Let's let's hear the rest of. Yeah, yeah. But let's let's carry on. So why that building in particular? Because we spoke about the um the fact that the people that police the area are not from the area. But I also spoke with an eighth grade teacher that I that I ran and caught that I ran into on the street. And she said, she was like, let me tell you again, that building that was burned down, she's like, it, it, it's so romantic in a sense. Or uh, because that building that was uh burned down to create that police that that um uh, that precinct three schools within that district were defunded and were even shut three schools in that district were shut now i don't know all the particulars surrounding it it could have been consolidating the students failing grades all that shit that goes into it but that is a that is the an example of the school to prison pipeline that is so pervasive in institutionalized racist uh, systems. That is uh, part of the biggest problem that we have. And that was a clear example of how that works. You defund and, and close three schools to build a precinct. And the building itself was in extremely intimidating. But again, these are not supposed to be, you know, hey, come on into the precinct. But, you know, it's not supposed to be inviting and, and beautiful, <laughs> but it looks intimidating. So that all adds into the psyche of the area. And again, none of that has anything to do with the conspiracy theory that China is trying to destroy us by using racism. I'm going to keep reiterating that because that seems to be a lot of what's coming out of one, one portion and section of the collective thought and conversation, um, which again... I believe in that and enemies and, and the geopolitics of a situation and then why someone would use a weakness to try and destroy something that has been under attack for quite for quite a bit. But um let's 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 close this up a little bit here. Let's round this up. The George Floyd murder has sent shockwaves throughout the world. There have been protests in fifty states and thirteen different countries by the point uh, by the time I had written this uh, which was in May. No, excuse me. I wrote this in, uh, yeah, late May. Um, going into, and it got published on Juneteenth. Yeah, it got published on Juneteenth, so that's June 19th. So at this point, so if we want to take it for when this came out, June 19th, now we're in September, and in this fact, hasn't stopped. It's months. only gotten and it has, worse. It's only gotten worse. It seems like every right. other day you've got another story that's inciting more and more anger and rage, and it, it, just people exactly. are feeding on it out there on it. But exactly, exactly. So you know, people from all walks of life are making sure that this one message is truly heard, and this is the message: It's time to break the cycle of perpetual violence, discrimination, and hatred. I firmly believe that education is a major key in stopping us from repeating the past. And I'm not just talking about scholastic achievement, but also about educating our youth on how to respect each other, ultimately teaching them the value of their lives and all of our lives. Justice for George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmaud Arbery, and police reform are but small victories in a fight for understanding. 
And we posted a video of this. Uh, here is kind of a quote that I ended it with. The whole system is infected. The imperative is to break the cycle. It is not my fight and my quarrel is not with the police, but it's with the system that has enabled and supported racism. Neither black nor white people are going anywhere. We're going to have to occupy this earth together. So I leave you with this. I do not need you to love me, nor do I need you to like me. Just respect my right to exist. Um, so the op-ed w- was interesting and so much has happened since then. Now, here's my take on a lot of what's happening since then and why I said on, on Twitter and Facebook the other day that I think black, um, black people need to separate or disassociate from the corporation, I guess you want to call it, this entity that is Black Lives Matter. Why? Because Black Lives Matter was supposed to facilitate and be uh, a vehicle to which we would get closer to social justice. Because social justice is an aspect, especially in a society like ours, where all men are supposed to be created equal, all are created equal, everyone's supposed to have an equal footing and right, but there have been instances and times, you know, it's not perfect, but there have been instances and times, so hence social justice is something that has always been a part of our culture, and a valid part of our culture. But those that are using the moniker that, excuse me, those that are flying that flag now have seemingly masked social justice, have masked a radical political agenda with social justice. And that is just unfair. So you mean the, the Black Lives Matter movement? They're the yeah. ones waving this flag that's now Though, become- and, Yeah, and, and you know, again, they say that studies, I saw something by, I think it was Forbes or- Time, the Time, Time uh, magazine, I said 95% of protests are nonviolent, uh, excuse me, are nonviolent and are peaceful. Okay, whatever. But that's not what we've seen. Yeah, that's not what we're shown at all. That's not what we're shown. That's not the narrative we're fed? That's definitely, exactly. It's not the narrative we're fed. But again, yes, the media is playing a massive part in stoking this, these flames. But at the other side, you know, we're getting, I'm, I'm hearing and we're seeing it and we're seeing violent interactions between, between uh, citizens. We saw something in Pittsburgh the other day where some protesters went into a restaurant where people were just trying to eat and live with a, with, with, with a, uh, with a megaphone and screaming, you know, all these, ah, with obscenities and, 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 you know, just harassing people. Oh my God. And that's the kind of shit that I'm talking about. That's fucking bullshit. The whole, we are trained Marxist comment. Like that is way off the mark. Do you think those people have even read the manifesto? (laughs) Oh, they've met the Communist Manifesto for sure. The people at the top, they've 1,000% met it. They said we are fully trained Marxists. We are embedded and we are fully immersed in Marxism. And I don't want to live like that. That's not what we, st- what we stand for here. 
social justice is one thing, but your political agenda and your, your indoctrination is another. This land was fought over, fought for, planted and sown by white, black, red, yellow, whoever the fuck. But so many people have fought for the right to protest, but your demolishing of property, you're, you're, you're burning, the looting, the stealing, the, the agitation. What the fuck? I say it again. What does that have to do with my black life? What does that have to do with the, the lives of the people that fought for that? We're not, you know, and, and the thing is, the idea of continuing the fight for social justice this is not continuing the fight. You're renewing the fight. You're, you're renewing a new, you're bringing about a new issue. You're involving now the identity politics into social justice, which yes, I get it. You, you, with, for justice, you need policy. And so politics are involved, but not that. Now, when you say identity into politics, you're saying that they're kind of dividing things by throwing the word race around. Personally, the term race kind of confuses me because if you can make babies with all those people, you're the, the, same, you're the same race. race. Exactly. Of course. Well, I mean, the but geographical again, backgrounds. Again, sure, that, that's, that's, that's a wider and broader conversation about race and what it means. And, and a divisive you know, narrative that yeah, you're fed yeah, we via can the go means into of race. That, and we, which we will. We will. But the, the, the point is what's happening now and what racism and how racism is being used and weaponized against each other. So one side kind of wants to just eradicate it all, take it off the table and, you know, talk and utilize another means by which they can unite the country. Okay. I, I, I get that sort of. And I agree with that sentiment and that idea, but we cannot just, eradicate and erase it i agree with let's unite and let's you know talk about the the good things and the progress which is fantastic but we cannot deny that there's there are people being left behind and racism is playing a factor in, in, into that um it might not dominate your world mr colorblind <laughs> but it's a reality to so many it's a reality that we have not really come to terms with. And I'm not going to stop talking about it until people recognize it and say, let's really work on this shit and let's unravel the layers that protect these institutions. Let's talk about police reform. Let's talk about, uh, you know, changes in the prison industrial complex. Let's talk about the way we, we the way we talk to each other. Let's, someone uh, I was reading I was listening to this podcast the other day and people were talking about how do we institute love and compassion to to kind of uh, how do we divert the people that are being attracted to this movement and revolution or whatever that are just out there for violence and how do we deter those that are out there that are kind of like I want to be involved in something I want to be involved in change how do we tell them that there is something else? This is not the way. What you're being, what, what you're being fed, what you're aligning yourself with is not social justice. It is something different. 
It is not who we are about as a nation. It's not what we stand for. We don't stand for, for what's happening out there. We're not going to turn our guns on each other. But we need to talk about these, these things. We need to, we need to uh, discuss the actual discuss steps necessary, necessary to move forward, not just find some motivation and run in a direction, which is what everyone kind of seems like they're doing, man. There's this exactly. constant misguided notion that, oh, run this way. Oh, no, run this way. Right. And, you know, I've heard some people right. call it like utopianism and stuff like that. And it kind of, it makes me think of the movie, The Time Machine. You ever see that movie, of The course, Time Machine? Old school movie? Well, that, that, that is never, we're never going to achieve that sort of, that 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 sort of utopian uh, paradise. We're not going to achieve that in our time. And then that's and you know people say, oh yeah, man. Well, this idea that we don't have cops and everyone's just supposed to just live all willy nilly and free and you know it, that's impossible. But I do like what AOC said the other day about you know what's a world without defunding police? What is what are our communities going to look like? She's like, yeah, it's going to look like the suburbs. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And <laughs> You go and look at the tweet and kind of, uh, or the Instagram response or whatever it was, just l look at it, read it, absorb it for yourself. But um, yeah, man, I think, you know, talking about the institutionalized systemic racism and, and why I wrote that, why I wrote that op-ed, what it meant, where it was supposed to go and where we are now, um, I think it really lays a solid foundation for who we are as the narrative and it opens up the floor to conversation and it opens up the floor and, and dialogue and it opens people's thought to know that when you listen here, um, we're, we're going to just try and give you a truth and I'm going to tell my truth. But at the same time, I want you to use your truth and uh, let's find the let's commonality. Find, let's find common ground. Yo, big up my friends. This has been the uh, narrative episode two episode two love you uh stand up man stand up for yourself stand up for each other love each other in us we trust peace